0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So in John chapter 1, John excuse, excuse me in John chapter 1, John has introduced the Lord Jesus Christ. In these very, very important ways, in chapter 1, verse 14, he is the word become flesh. And then later we read in chapter 1, verse 35, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here we've introduced the most important person, the word who's become flesh, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the part of the chapter that was just read, Jesus has his first disciples come to him and he tells them this in verse 50. Behold, you will see greater things than these. And what we're gonna look at now in John 2, 1 through 12 is the first of these greater things that he will reveal. In John 2, verse 11, this is called the first sign that Jesus performs. And as we'll try to explain today, a sign in the gospel of John is something that occurs on two levels. It is a real historical occurrence, but it is also something with profound spiritual significance and meaning. So we're going to follow that exact format in our sermon. First, we'll walk through the real historical event, verse by verse, John 2, 1 through 12. And then the second half of the sermon, we'll press out the purpose of the sign, the spiritual significance, the deep meaning for you and I, okay? So the title of today's sermon is The Wonder of Jesus at a Wedding. If you need the pew Bible, take it now from in front of you and turn to page 1054, because you'll want to be at John 2. We're going to walk through John 2, 1 through 12, verse by verse, as we continue to exposit the gospel of John. All right, so John 2, now verse 1, this is the first sign. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The third day is what John has been counting since John 1, verse 35, since Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God. We see the, that day, and then Gen, John 1, the next day, and then here John 2, 1, the third day from them. But actually, as most scholars have pointed out, this is the seventh day of the first week that John spends time recording. So this miracle will take place on the Sabbath. Here's where Jesus launches his first sign. Happening at Cana in Galilee lets us know it's close to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. This would be a community-wide event. It'd be a big deal. Lots of people would come. And included in that is an invitation to the mother of Jesus, to Jesus, and to, as you just heard read, his brand new disciples. So here we have Jesus at this momentous occasion with these people who have just started following him. Remember, Jesus does everything on purpose, and he has already told Nathaniel that he will see greater works than these. And now we're about to see them. So verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This is the core problem. They've gathered for a wedding, a celebration that may last up to a full week, but without the wine, the celebration is likely to end. So, this would be a massive deal. The celebration could be over, the wedding festival could be over, and this would be disappointing to everyone. We're so far removed historically, it's hard for us to realize the community disappointment of this. We're used to entertainment at our fingertips. We have options that are seemingly endless of things we could do. But 2,000 years ago, if there is a wedding and it's something you're invited to, this is a big deal. This is what your calendar is revolving around. This is when you meet people and have joy and celebration. But now it's going to end early, which would be disappointing to everyone. But not only would it be disappointing to everyone, in a shame and honor culture, it would be very shameful for the groom whose responsibility was to provide the wine. Not only would it be shameful, but there are some occasions we can read about where you could have a lawsuit levied against you from relatives of the bride if the groom failed to provide the wedding, the wedding wine. So here we are, and the mother of Jesus in verse three comes to him letting him know they have no wine. Now what does Mary want Jesus to do? And if you read commentaries, you can read 20. I read at least 11, and they make a big deal over this. What is it that she wants? Well, the text doesn't exactly tell us, is the short answer. Her exact expectations are not revealed. But based on Jesus' response, she's hoping for something that she believes Jesus can do. This is his first sign. We have no recorded miracles that he's done before here. But she's leaning on him for help and support. Let me quote D.A. Carson. I think he's helpful here. It's more likely that Mary turned to Jesus because she had learned to rely upon his resourcefulness. She is likely a widow by this period. And like any widow, Mary had leaned hard on her firstborn son, how easy that must have been with a son like him. So here Mary's leaning on Jesus as was wont for her without Joseph probably living at this point. Let me point out, there's no wiser place to go than to lean on Jesus, as Mary is doing so now. Now, verse four, Jesus' response is pretty striking. Mary says, there's no wine, implying the celebration is over, the wedding is done. What will Jesus do? Verse four, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's very difficult in English to convey the weight of him calling her woman. Madam, lady, ma'am, kind of close, but we have several connotations to those words based on our experience. Here's the one thing we are supposed to catch. It is appropriate and respectful, but it is without question a rebuke. He is rebuffing her. He is appropriately and righteously correcting her, just by the very title of woman. But then what he adds further makes clear that he has an independence and freedom in the choice that he will make. It's an idiom in the original. It's hard to translate in English, but I think the ESV does admirably when it writes, what does this have to do with me? There's no way to avoid the conclusion that Jesus is indicating his utter freedom and his divine prerogative. He has the right to make the right decision. Which would have been a difficult thing for the woman who raised him, nursed him, and taught him to come to grips with as he's launching his public ministry. But Jesus has a perfect plan and a divinely scheduled mission. And that's why the end of verse 4 says, my hour has not yet come. If today is new for you to be at church and today is new for you to be in the Gospel of John, you might rightly ask, what is this hour if you've read the Gospel of John many times, you know the hour is a very important theme. And each time you reread it, you can trace the hour and the definitive divine prerogative in the planning and scheduling of the signs and of the hour. The hour will be used in the Gospel of John to collapse all the most important ministry of Jesus into one phrase, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus are all collapsed in the use of my hour. And here Jesus is letting Mary know that he has carefully, sovereignly controlled the unfolding timing of his hour. Well, let's continue to read and see what happens as Jesus' response to his mother is now unfolded. Even though she is appropriately Rebuffed. Notice how Mary speaks in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So, having just been given an appropriate clarity that her son is sovereign, yet she says, Trust him and do whatever he tells you, at least implying that what he tells you to do may not make much sense to you, but you ought to do it. Do whatever he says. In the original, whatever is added with a few other words. The idea is do anything at all that he tells you to do. Now, verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. You must not miss the purpose of these jars. These jars are here. For Jewish purification, they are not wine barrels; they have never been used to contain wine. That is not what their purpose is. They are here for ceremonial cleansing in jesus day, from the law of Moses up until him, in order to approach the presence of God embodied symbolically at the temple, you had to repeatedly regularly wash yourself over and over and over and over again to remind yourself that you have uncleanness morally and spiritually that keeps you from the presence of God. And these six stone jars were for that purpose, to contain water for ceremonial, repeated cleansing for the Jewish temple purification rites. Now in the original, in translating it this week, something really popped out to me. The word there is used twice, and it's in a second way that's a little bit striking. The text not only says that these jars are there, it then says again that they are there for a purpose. The Greek word means destined or appointed. I think actually what the Gospel of John is trying to say is that here are six stone jars that were appointed for ceremonial cleansing, but Jesus is going to appoint them for a new purpose, you see? Now we continue in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. Jesus has said, fill them with water. They fill them all the way up, verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out, some water out, and bring it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Boy, I mean, these servants must have taken Mary seriously when she said, do whatever he tells you to do, because they're bringing water, and the party has run out of wine. Nothing about this plan makes any sense. Why would they fill the jars with water? And if you're bringing water to the master of the feast, you can only anticipate you're about to be embarrassed in front of everybody. So notice what happens. Verse 9 when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. They didn't know that. They're just bringing water to him in the expectation we should just do whatever Jesus tells us to do. The master of the feast tasted it, and it is wine. And verse 9 continues, and he did not know where it came from. Where is this wine from? We ran out of wine, And now these servants are bringing us this, the next phrase in the text, the parenthetical, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So for them, it starts clicking together. That guy who told me to bring water must have done something because I ended up bringing more than I thought. The end of the verse, verse 9, then the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I love this little anecdote. Here's the groom getting patted on the back like he's a brilliant party planner. And reality, like most grooms, he has no clue what's going on. Uh, I want to remind you of something serious. If you have ever been commended by something good, you can be sure it wasn't you, right? I mean, Christian, don't you know that? Don't you know, like, man, if anything good has happened, I know that was not me in that thing. And it gets even better than this. The wine that has been created by Jesus is superior to everything that has preceded it. You caught that right in verse 10? He said, Normally, you have the best early. You're giving me the best now. This is better than anything we've had, and it's at the very end. How did you do this? And, of course, the groom doesn't know, but we as the reader know. And verse 11 tells us this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. I have to nerd out with you on the word sign because it's very important. There are three Greek words that are possibilities that you could use to describe a miracle. The one is the most common one, dunamis, that would mean a mighty work, or terada, which would be a miracle. John does not use either of those. He uses semios, sign, for this reason. Because a miracle just describes something amazing. A mighty work describes something unnatural, supernatural, preternatural, but a sign... Describes something that occurred at a historical level, but has significance of an eternal import. It's something that happened factually, but also has impact figuratively. It's something that happened literally, but also has impact spiritually. That's how all signs work. They communicate more than just the sign. So at this point, we're supposed to say, what is the point of the sign? Why would he do this miracle in this place And at this time, what's the significance of it? Donald Guthrie helpfully writes, a sign always points to some deeper truth beyond itself. What is its purpose? All right, well, let me show you from verse 11 what the signs are intended to do, and then I'll tell you what I think the sign is conveying. Okay, look in God's Word, verse 11. This is when he did the first of his signs Towards what end, notice the Bible says, to manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is why he's doing the signs, so that he can show glimpses of his glory and so that his disciples will believe in him. Through believing in him, they grasp the purpose of the sign. All right, this is exactly why John said he wrote the book. John chapter 20 Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs, same word, signs, which are not recorded in this book, but these ones are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus is doing these signs so that we will believe that he is all that he says he is, the glorious Son of God and the Messiah. Now, this sign in particular causes people to get really confused. It seems simple. Reynolds Price, who taught literature at Duke for a long time, uh, is struggling with why Jesus would do this sign. Here's what he wrote. If you're inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, if you're making up stories about Jesus, who would invent the inaugural event of Jesus' career as a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment. You see what Price is confused about? He's saying, why would divine power be used for a catering disaster? I mean, if your first miracle is going to launch your career, why not raise somebody from the dead or walk on water? Why turn water into wine in a way that not even everyone at the wedding would have clearly comprehended? Reynolds Price is confused. Perhaps you are too. Why this sign? And here I'm going to give you three things that I'm going to try to show from the passage. And if you have a bulletin, they're actually already on your bulletin. So three things from the passage that I think are right in it that are glimpses of Christ's glory so that we will believe. All right, here's the first one. The first purpose of this sign Water to wine at a wedding is, number one, from old to new. All right, the first symbolic thing that he is doing is going from old to new. The transition from old to new is very important. These purification jars were for ceremonial cleansing. They were to wash over and over and over and over and over so that you could feel cleanness to temporarily enter the presence of God. But friends, once Jesus turned the water to wine, those purification jars could never again be used for ceremonial cleansing. They were now unworthy and off limits to the task. Don't you see then, symbolically, once he fills those with wine, the old has passed and the new has come. Didn't John tell us in John 1, verse 17, for the law came through Moses, but Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. The old has become new. This is the first thing this miracle is showing us. And did you notice how much better the new is? When they drank it, they said, this is the best we've had. And the lesson for all of us is that when you have Jesus, he is incomparably superior to everything else, even all that has preceded him, as gifts from God. The replacement is a permanent one because what preceded it was just preparing for it. And now Jesus Christ has come to make all things new. You see, the coming of Jesus is supposed to be time of great celebration. The prophets refer over and over to a future day when the Lord's Messiah will come And a common metaphor that the prophets use is flowing wine. Isaiah 25 verse 6 is a good example. On that day, the mountain of the Lord of hosts for all peoples will be a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine. You see, the prophets are trying to let you know when God's Messiah comes, it is time for great celebration. The coming of Jesus is time for incredible joy. Let me press an application to you then. If any part of you believes that a relationship with Jesus would be boring, if any part of you thinks that true Christianity would be no fun, then I'd want you to know that whatever you have conceived of is not Jesus, and whatever you have conceived of is not Christianity. A relationship with Jesus is the best thing. The most superior thing there is. Thanks to your generosity, over Thanksgiving, we were able to bring Thanksgiving baskets to people that our school system told us were in need. And the guys in the office, we delivered those during the week, and so we took turns. Who would speak at each home that we went to? And I drew the first straw, and so I spoke at the first house. And we got to the house gave them the food basket and they let us in the door. And as we were standing in the living room, I was thinking, I don't know if I'll see this family again. So I don't want to miss the opportunity. And I just looked at them and said, do you know Jesus? And they sort of hemmed and hawed and gave a couple, you know, I've been to church in the past sort of answers. And and I said, yeah, that's, that's all great. But here's what I want you to understand, that the relationship that I have with Jesus is hands down the best part of my life that the best thing that I did today was spend time with the Lord. There was nothing better than that, and there never will be. Friend, the coming of Jesus is an overflowing festival of celebration. This is why he does his first sign at a wedding and why he keeps the celebration going. Number one is old to new. All right, number two, the second symbolic truth that this sign is pointing to is that we should be longing for the final wedding. The second one is longing for the final wedding. All right, here's the most perplexing part of the passage, verse three, four, and five. I confess for years wrestling with this. I mean, for years, I kind of read it this way. Mary says there's no wine. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? And then he does the miracle anyway. For a long time, I read it as if he was kind of like, no, I'm not going to do this. Okay, mom, I guess if you ask me enough. It just sort of read like that. Why? That doesn't make any sense until it finally clicked for me when he refers to his hour. W- what is the, the thing that they're discussing that he correlates to his hour? And the thing is wine. All right, so wine is out, Mary speaking at a very earthly, temporal level. Jesus, who always speaks at just more than that, answers that his hour has not yet come. His hour for what? His hour to pour forth wine. That hour has not yet come. And yet Mary says, "Well, do whatever he tells you." Do you see what Jesus is saying? The hour of the overflowing wine promised in Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah and Amos, that hour has not yet come. And yet what Jesus will do at this wedding will secure that that hour will come. But what Jesus grasped that Mary doesn't is that that hour will be terrible before it is wonderful. Jesus is picturing this at the wedding. He knows that for that wine to pour forth means that he has to provide it by shedding the new covenant of his own blood. See, the overflowing joy of the glory will be preceded by the horror of his death. This is why he corrects her and responds with appropriate firmness. There is joy to come, but that joy will first be preceded by sorrow. If you're at somebody's wedding, particularly if you're visiting a wedding and you're, you're, you're single and you're longing for your wedding day to come, you may picture with joy that moment when it comes into your life. And friends, Jesus longs for his bride more than anyone ever has. But here at the wedding of Cana, he knows what it will mean for him to purchase his bride and make her radiant and white as snow. See, Jesus chooses a wedding as his first sign Because the groom has come. In John 3, just a couple, well, just a chapter and a half from now, John the Baptist will have almost all of his disciples leave him. And someone will come up to him and say, John, you're losing all of your disciples. I mean, what are we going to do about this? And in John 3, verse 29, here's what John the Baptist says. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. See, John the Baptist gets it. They're all supposed to leave me because he's the groom and we're the bride. See, Jesus is telling them that he's the groom. But as the groom, he's going to wash his bride clean by the cost of his own blood, which is why he has a sobriety regarding his hour. It ends in celebration, but it has a dark turn to get there of sorrow. I want to remind you, though, that the sorrow of the cross, like the ceremonial jars, was a once-for-all sacrifice. When Jesus pays it, he pays it all, and all that precedes it is over. It no longer has any future need or relevancy because it was a sign, and it has now been fulfilled. I also want you to think about, though, for Jesus to think about marrying his bride... Shows an immense love for the bride. My daughter is growing up far too fast, which is hard. But I remember years ago, I think she was about preschool age, and she went through a season where she loved to pretend wedding. She would play wedding ceremony. And so she would line up all of her stuffed animals in our basement, and they'd play music, and she would walk down the aisle, and she would marry Daddy over and over. Now I remember the Friday very well, where she had planned everything, and I was at work, and she had her mom text me a picture. She had received two play wedding rings, and she even had a wedding certificate. And her mom sent me the picture, and Daddy, tonight when you come home, can we have our wedding ceremony? And so all day she's thinking about it, and I come home, and the stuffed animals are there, and. And she has the ring. And for some reason, she chose Judah as the officiant. <laughs> it was the shortest service you've ever been to. So we, we walk down the aisle. We have the ceremony. It's this beautiful thing, daddy and, and daughter. And it's so touching that someday, 50 years from now, she can marry somebody else. And if she overcomes her four brothers, they, they deserve probably to, to marry her. But for me to, as her father, know that she's thinking about me like that, puts an immense amount of honor and joy in my heart. Friend, Jesus has thought of his bride in that way. Revelation 21 tells us this And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And there is no accident that that is the passage where Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. See, that almost the very beginning of the Bible is a wedding. And almost the very end of the Bible is a wedding. And in both cases, God walks the bride down the aisle. In Genesis 2, God walks Eve to Adam, but in Revelation 21, God brings us to Jesus. I mean, it it does not get better than this. So Jesus performs this first sign at a wedding because he is longing for the final wedding day. All right, now the third reason for this sign. Bring your empty jar to Jesus. Bring your empty jar to Jesus. Jesus does not perform a miracle until there's no wine left. And he performs a miracle on empty jars that could hold 20 to 30 gallons each. And he fills them to the top, up to 180 gallons of overflowing wine. Listen to me if you're here this morning and you haven't come to Jesus, I need to press this point to you from the passage. You cannot come to Jesus. As long as you think you're half full, you won't. You'll think, I have some stuff together. I'm well educated. I have a good job. People respect me. Are you going to let that keep you from Jesus? He's talking about overflowing wine. You're talking about thinking that you're half full. Just be honest enough to say, I'm empty apart from you, Christ. Come to Him and let Him overflow you. This is what the passage shows. Remember how I brought up earlier how the groom really doesn't know what's going on and yet he gets all the credit? Isn't that how salvation works? I mean, we get his righteousness, we get his acceptance, we get his perfection, we get his security, we get his exaltation, and we get his honor, but he died our death. He does the work. We receive the blessing. This is why I tell you to bring your empty jar to Jesus because we are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. We trust in Jesus. You know what's striking to me as a believer? Jesus, he knows what the hour is. Mary, the disciples, they're not fully grasping it. He knows how horrible it's going to be, and yet he celebrates with joy, knowing that he has sorrow ahead of him. Christian, we have joy ahead of us. Isn't that why Paul says, even now in our sorrow, we're always rejoicing? We ought not be sour Christians when we know the joy that is secured for us. This is what the overflowing wine of the new life in Christ looks like. I also want to show you that when Jesus overflows your life, it gives you counterintuitive power. You remember what Mary told the the servants do whatever he tells you to do. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, just, just do it. Now, this is not the only time we read about empty jars in the Bible. Paul picks up this theme of empty jars in Second Corinthians 4. And he says, even though we are empty jars, we have this treasure in our clay jars to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So wait, if my empty jar has been filled with the treasure of Jesus, what will that do for me in this life? And here's what Paul says. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. When the treasure of Christ fills your jar, you get counterintuitive power that is the opposite of your circumstances. Christian, this is the life God has for you, and it's an overflowing one. One last thing, I told you the three things that I think are the meaning of the symbol, but here's something else I want you to notice, and you'll see it throughout the Gospel of John. This is surely not the last time we'll see it. And that is the way that we are to approach Jesus is very often given in sensory language. We are told to eat, to drink, to consume, to take. Here, the master of the feast has to taste the new wine to know it's unlike everything else. And what I want to urge you to do is taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards was concerned about this, and here's what he wrote. Just as there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, But a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a taste or a sense of his beauty. See, Jesus performs this miracle at a wedding for the same reason he'll speak in sensory language throughout the gospel. Listen, Jesus is not inviting you to mentally assent to a list of affirmation and denials, as important as those are. Jesus is not inviting you to cognitively affirm propositions, though propositions are important. Even still, Jesus is technically not asking you to keep a list of rules, though his guidance is good. Jesus is doing much more than all of those. He's inviting you to taste him personally. And friend, just like the master of the feast, the first sign is water to wine because the feast of Jesus is something that you must taste in order to know. So taste the new wine of Christ by coming to him with your empty jar and finding him to overflow you. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you that in your grace and providence, we have communion today on the same day that we have this passage. And so as the elements go around, help us to remember that you said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Drink, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Lord, this is a festival that we will enjoy forever when we are in the presence of our Lord. But part of the purpose of communion is to remember that before it was a celebration, it was the darkest day of sorrow. Help us to realize that our sin is so serious that Jesus Christ died on a cross to remove it. Your holiness and justice is so right that sin has to be dealt with. And Lord, frankly, we can either come to Christ and be shielded by his blood, washed as a radiant bride, perfect. Or we can stubbornly resist Jesus and find that the righteous wrath of God falls on us deservedly as we deny the invitation to the wedding feast. Lord, help all of us today to taste. Perhaps someone today needs to come to be filled and to find that everything else has been empty in comparison to Christ. But those of us who are believers, Lord, help us to remember what Jesus told his disciples, that we ought to celebrate when we are with the groom. And now as we partake of that, we are just so thankful to be his bride. Thank you for your love on us, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.